Well, hello, oddballs. It's your host, Bobby. And your co-host, Lexi. And this is Oddities on Elm Street. All right. Welcome back to another episode, episode seven. Oh my god. Lucky numbers. Um, so before we get started today, I wanted to say a big thank you to everybody that's coming back for more. Oh my gosh. You guys are amazing. If you have enjoyed the podcast so far, we would love for you to rate it on Apple Podcasts. Or anywhere else. (laughs) Spotify. I don't know how. Is that like a. Yes, you can. That's a thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. Well, I've got that covered. There you go. You're my girl. Um, also, I am going to be releasing some merch soon. So everybody will have to keep an eye out for that. I've showed you a little bit sneak of what peek. I'm... Yes, yeah, sneak peek. I try to make it something that like people would actually like and not just something with my name on it. <laughs> That's... Would not buy. Stu- I wouldn't even buy it. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> So, a little bit of an update today before we jump into our topic, the stabbings in Idaho Mm. that took the lives of those four college students. Police are now looking for help finding the occupant of a car that was seen outside of their home, and this person that was inside the vehicle is believed to have critical information about the case. So, the car they're looking for is a white Hyundai Elantra made between the years 2011 and 2013. Unfortunately, they don't have the license plate number, but if you know anything, they have given um, the Moscow Police Department number out, the tip line, and that number is 208-883-7180. So hopefully the family has some answers soon. Tragic. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe that it has been... This happened before Thanksgiving. It's Christmas next week. And nobody has come forward yet. It's crazy. So today we're going to continue our Unsolved Mystery series. I'm so excited. I love these. I love these so much. So this will be a part two. Okay. Okay, I'm ready. (laughs) What you got for me, hmm? The case we'll be talking about today is the case of the Sodder children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know about it? Mm-hmm. This case drives me crazy. A- George and Jenny Sodder were Italian immigrants who had both come to America in their early childhood. George started his own trucking company in Smithers, West Virginia, and Jenny was a storekeeper's daughter. So, once they were married, the Sodders started their lives together just outside of Fayetteville in a two-story house. During this time, Fayetteville had a large population of Italian immigrants, so they fit right in. In 1923, they had their first out of ten children, and George's business began doing really well. Someone local said that the Sodders were one of the most respected middle-class families in town. However, they didn't have many friends in their life as George had some pretty strong opinions on controversial topics and he was not afraid to express them. 
One of these opinions in particular had to do with his opposition to dictator Benito Mussolini. So some of the other Italian immigrants in the community were rubbed the wrong way by this, and it had caused some arguments between them and George. Their tenth child, Sylvia, was born in 1942. By then, their second oldest son, Joe, had left home to serve in World War II. On Christmas Eve in 1945, the entire family was home to celebrate except for Joe. The oldest daughter of the Sauter family had worked at a shop in downtown Fayetteville and surprised her three younger sisters with new toys for Christmas. The children were so excited to play with their new toys that they had asked their mother Jenny if they could stay up a little longer than usual. Jenny told them they could as long as the two older boys were still awake. The two boys had to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed anyways. The father, George, and the two oldest boys were already asleep as they had been working all day on the farm. After this, Jenny took two-year-old Sylvia upstairs to go to bed with her. Jenny was awakened by the telephone ringing just past midnight. She went downstairs to answer it, and on the other end was a woman whose voice she didn't recognize. The woman on the phone asked for a name that Jenny was unfamiliar with. She then heard the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. Jenny told the caller she must have the wrong number, so she hung up and went back to bed. Before doing so, she noticed that the lights in the house were still on, which was unusual. Usually when the children went to bed, they were responsible for shutting off all the lights on their way to their bedrooms. But she saw one of her daughters asleep on the couch, so she just assumed that the other children who stayed up late had gone back up to the attic where they slept. At 1 a.m., Jenny is awakened again by the sound of something hitting the roof of their house and then the sound of rolling. She waited up to listen but heard nothing further, so she went back to sleep. After another half hour, she was woke up by the smell of smoke. When she got up from bed, she saw that George's office was on fire around the telephone line and the fuse box. Jenny woke George up, who then went on to wake up his two older sons. Sylvia was already in bed with Jenny, and their daughter Marion was asleep on the couch, so the parents and those four children are able to escape. Once they get outside, they instantly begin yelling to the children asleep upstairs, but heard no response. They weren't able to climb the stairs to rescue them because the staircase was already engulfed in flames. Because the phone line was also on fire, they weren't able to call for help. So Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the fire department. A driver on the road passing by saw the house in flames and called from a nearby tavern, but were unsuccessful reaching anyone because the phone was either broken or they just couldn't reach the operator. When George went to retrieve the ladder to climb into an attic window, it was gone, even though he had always kept it in the same spot. He intended to use a nearby water barrel to help extinguish the fire, but it was frozen solid. He then tried to pull both of his work trucks up to the house to climb into the attic window, but neither of them would start, even though they worked perfectly fine the day prior. The only option the Sauter family was left with was to stand by and watch their house burn to the ground, knowing that the rest of their family was trapped inside. It's terrible. <sighs> so helpless. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's yeah. That's the only word that comes to mind is just helplessness. The house took a total of forty-five minutes to burn down and collapse. The other five children were assumed to have perished in the fire. The fire department was only two and a half miles away, but the crew didn't arrive until eight a.m. Seven hours after the fire had broke out. <laughs> what were they doing? Did they just not know? Or? They said that it was. They said that they were short-staffed because of the war. And the fire chief, I guess, for some reason, was unable to drive the fire truck, so he had to wait until somebody became available. But like seven hours. I feel like they could do a little bit better. Yeah. So by the time they got to the solder home, it was reduced to just a pile of ash. Mm -hmm. The firefighters looked through the ashes but hadn't found any bones. The family was told to leave the site undisturbed so that the fire marshals could conduct a more thorough investigation. But after four days, George and Jenny couldn't stand the site anymore, so they bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site where their house once stood, with the intention of turning it into a memorial garden for their deceased children. The next day, a jury determined that the fire was started by faulty wiring. It was after this that George began recounting some strange events that took place just before the fire had happened. Two months before the incident in October, an insurance salesman was going door-to-door in the neighborhood. When he reached the Sodder home, George declined any interest in buying any new policies. In response, the insurance salesman stated, Your house will go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. What a sales pitch. Oh my god. His reason for saying this was because of the quote, dirty remarks that George had been making about Mussolini. (laughs) Um, I Mm. believe that he was making dirty remarks about Mussolini at, um, like, a town hall meeting type of thing. Mm. And that's where it rubbed people the wrong way. So another man seeking work went around the back of the house and pointed towards the fuse boxes, saying, that's going to cause a fire someday. George was confused by this observation, as he had just had the entire house rewired while installing a new electric stove. George had even had it checked by the local electric company, who said that it was perfectly safe. Also, in the weeks leading up to that fatal Christmas Eve, one of the older sons had noticed a strange car parked along the main road. The people inside were watching the younger children as they returned home from school. One of the jurors, among those who ruled the fire an accident by faulty wiring, he was the man who threatened George, saying his house was going to be burned down and his children would be destroyed because of his remarks against Mussolini. Tell me that's a coincidence. He he was on the jury? (laughs) He was on the jury that ruled the fire an accident. (laughs) Wow. (sighs) This case is just too much. Death certificates for the five children were issued six days after the fire on December 30th. George and Jenny were so affected by this that they couldn't even bear to attend the funerals of their children, 
although the surviving children did. The family tried their best to rebuild their lives, but George and Jenny had so many unanswered questions. They wondered how the fire could have possibly been caused by an electrical issue when their Christmas lights had remained on when the house first started burning down. Typically, with any electrical fire, the power instantly goes off. In the ladder that George couldn't find to reach his children in the attic, it was found at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away. Sketchy. Very. Mm-hmm. Also, when they went to call the fire department, their phones weren't working. A telephone repairman later told George and Jenny that the house's phone line hadn't been burned in the fire at all. Instead, it had to have been cut by someone willing to climb up the pole to do so. So around the time the fire had started, neighbors had seen a man trying to steal some tools from the solder property. This man was identified and arrested. He admitted to the theft and claimed that he was the one who cut their phone line, but mistook it for their power line. Which, okay, maybe this might not be true, but if he would have cut the power line, wouldn't that have stopped the fire from happening altogether if it was, in fact, caused by faulty wiring? I don't know anything about anything. (laughs) I mean, that makes sense to me, but... No. Because that is like one of those like butterfly effect type things. Mm-hmm. If it really was hap- like if it really was started by the electric, which I don't think it is. But if it was and he cut the wiring to their power, the fire would have never happened and we wouldn't be sitting here today talking about it. Am I right or am I right? I mean... (laughs) Oh my gosh, I wish that there was a close-up on your face. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad, so sad. (laughs) All right, so um, he denied having any involvement with the fire and no record of his arrest or the identity of him even exists. Mm. There's also never been an explanation of why he wanted to cut their power line in the first place. I mean, if you're just there to steal tools, why? Right? Why? Seems I don't like... I don't get that. Maybe it was a false confession, and that's why they didn't document it. I don't know. Super strange. Just another super strange aspect right. of the story. Right. Jenny had a hard time accepting that all traces of the children's bodies had been completely diminished in the fire. Many of their household appliances had been found and were still recognizable, along with fragments of their tin roof. She had read another story of a fire in a newspaper around the same time that had killed a family of seven. Skeletal remains of all of those victims were found at the scene of the fire. She even tested this theory out herself by burning small piles of animal bones to see if they would be completely consumed. But every time she tried, the bones still remained. I mean, yeah, there's... That's not how it works. Yeah. It needs to be, like, intense, intense fire for a a long, long time. Yeah. So Jenny went on to contact an employee at a local crematorium with these concerns. This employee told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees for two hours long. The fire at their home was already over after 45 minutes. So how could this be possible? There's no way. (sighs) 
George began looking into the issues with his trucks. After all, they'd been working perfectly fine in the days leading up to the fire. He began to suspect that they had possibly been tampered with, Mm -hmm. but he was never able to find any important information. The wrong number phone call that night was also taken into consideration, but when the woman who placed the call was located, she confirmed that it was in fact just a wrong number phone call. All these leads with no... Mm-hmm. That, I can't imagine being the parents. Just want to know what it's, happened It's to them. just all so strange. Like, where, where would the children be? And who would have taken them? And where, like, they're and just gone forever? I, I don't... And is it possible that, like, there are so many people in on this that the fire <gasps> department doesn't get there until seven hours later? All because of his opinionated self. Right. Like, is that really a logical thing? No, but, like, not a lot of things make sense. Right. Yeah, nothing makes sense in this case. It's just super frustrating. So, as spring approached, the Sodders planted flowers in the soil that they bulldozed over the house Mm -hmm. in memory of their lost children. Jenny tended to this small garden for the rest of her life. However, further developments in early 1946 reinforced the family's beliefs that the children they were memorializing might, in fact, still be alive. New evidence began emerging. It became realized that the fire had not started in the electrical box like previously assumed, but was actually deliberate. The driver of a bus that passed through the town on the evening of the fire said they had seen people throwing what looked like balls of fire at the house, which I had never heard this before. No. So this is news to me. I've known about this case for a while, but... The rolling sound? I don't know what kind of ball, but... Interesting. Exactly. Interesting. A few months later, after the snow had melted, one of the children had found a suspicious object in the bushes nearby. It was a small, hard, dark green rubber ball. George remembered his wife's accounts of the loud thump that she Mm -hmm. heard on the roof just before the fire broke out. Mm -hmm. He said the object looked like a hand grenade or some other type of similar weapon used specifically to start fires. The family claimed that the fire had started on the roof, but unfortunately at this point they had no way to prove it. Right. Over the years, witnesses have come forward claiming to have seen the rest of the Sodder children. One woman who had been watching the fire from the road said she saw some of the children peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. Another woman at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she has served them breakfast the next morning on Christmas Day. She also noted that a car with Florida license plates was in the parking lot as well. George and Jenny Sauter went on to hire a private investigator. This PI was the one who informed them that the insurance salesman who had threatened George over his anti-Mussolini remarks, Mm -hmm. was on the jury that determined that the fire was caused by faulty wiring. The PI began hearing rumors around town that the fire marshal had found a heart in the ashes that day, which he packed into a metal box and buried in secret. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) 
He found a heart. Like... That was the rumor. Like, no bones, no nothing but this but heart. But a heart that he... Supposedly. So I guess the reason this became a rumor was because the fire marshal had actually admitted this to a local minister, who in turn confirmed it to George. The fire marshal agreed to show them where he had buried this metal box, and they dug it up. However, when they took it to the local funeral director, they determined that it was actually fresh beef liver and had never even been exposed to fire. (laughs) (laughs) What in the flying fuck? So this... (laughs) What? This started more rumors that the fire marshal placed a second metal box with the liver inside to protect himself in case he was ever confronted with this rumor about the heart. That is so... I don't know. I don't know. Weird. I've never heard this before. (sighs) Me neither. (laughs) It's just such a weird... Such a weird... Thing. I don't get it. Like, I don't understand what the the motive would be, and how a heart would even be there. And if it, like, does he actually have a metal box with anything in it? Like, it. I just besides a beef liver, <laughs> right? I besides don't know. a decoy box, I don't know. But then, why even have a decoy? Anyways. George and Jenny never stopped looking for their missing children. In fact, George had seen a magazine photo of a group of young ballet dancers in New York City and drove all the way to the school where the photo was taken. He was convinced that one of the girls in the photo was his missing daughter. Which kind of makes me really sad. Because this is, like, obviously consuming this poor man. Yeah. I mean, it... It would anybody. It sh- I mean, I'm not going to say it should, but as a parent, it should consume you to never know. Like, I can't. Uh. Well, just the tragedy alone, but then all of the weird, strange yeah. events surrounding it. Like, when it's like every time that you think you've accepted it, something new comes up and it starts all over again. And you have that that last glimpse of hope that they might still be out there. You know what I mean? That's terrible. So, um, yeah, he went to this school in New York City, but the school turned him away. George also contacted the FBI for help, but was turned away again because the local police and fire department refused to work with them on the case. In August of 1949, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to conduct a new search through the dirt where the house once stood. After a very thorough search, artifacts belonging to the children had been recovered, like a dictionary and some coins, and then bones. Several small bone fragments were found in the dirt. These fragments were determined to be human vertebrae. They were sent to a specialist at the Smithsonian Institution and were confirmed to be all from the same person. The person at the time of death was estimated to have been about 16 or 17 years old, but their oldest child at that time was only 14. 
It was also determined that the bones showed no exposure to fire at all. Almost like they were planted. How did they not find them on the day of the search? Right. But now all of a sudden they're They're there, right? And only a vertebrae? Like nothing else? Yes. Just fragments from a vertebrae. So they theorized that the bone fragments had come from the dirt that was bulldozed itself and had most likely been from a cemetery nearby. But it was never explained why they were on their property. So the whole thing is just sketchy. Wonky. This investigation and its findings garnered new attention, so the West Virginia legislator held two hearings on the case in 1950. But the governor and state police superintendent told the Sodders that the case was, quote, hopeless, and they closed it at the state level. It seems like they don't want them to know shit, and I don't like that. Like, why are they so adamant about just, like, not doing anything? Just, like, closing the case? I don't get it. And that's what I mean, is how could it be possible that there are so many people in on this? If all of these leads are, in fact, true, Mm -hmm. and have anything to do with what happened, you know, say the community was mad about the Mussolini Mm -hmm. shit, which is stupid... But say that's what aggravated them enough to want to do this, and they go there and kidnap. I mean, there's theories about them being part of, like, um, an Italian mob. Like, some of the people in the town being part Mm. of an Italian mob. So they go and kidnap their kids and then set their house on fire knowing that everybody else would be able to make it out. Okay. But then that means that the fire department would have to be involved and the police department would have to be involved. Would everybody really get behind something like this? I don't, I don't know either. Messy. Yeah. Very messy. So anyways, they closed the case at the state level, but the FBI finally decided that it had jurisdiction to look into the case as a possible interstate kidnapping but they dropped it after two years of following leads that led nowhere. Really? Yeah. But even after all of this, Jenny and George never gave up hope. They instead handed out flyers with pictures of their children, offering thousands of dollars in reward money out of the hope that someone would come forward. In 1952, they put up a billboard on the side of their house with the same information on it. And this brought in another lead. A woman who ran a Charleston hotel came forward, saying that she had seen the children the week of their disappearance. They'd come in around midnight with two men and two women, all of Italian descent. And the woman claimed that when she tried speaking to the children, one of the men gave her a hostile look and began speaking in Italian. After this, the entire group stopped talking. She recalled that they had left early the next morning. Also, a customer at a bar in Texas claimed to overhear two people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia years before. All of this 
was clearly taking a toll on George and Jenny, George traveled to all of these areas where the tips had come in. When he heard that a relative of Jenny's in Florida had children that looked similar to his, he made the relative prove that the children were his own. Now, I can kind of understand this only because one of the tips that came in was that that woman at the rest stop had seen the children at a restaurant. She'd right. served the children at a restaurant, and one of the cars on the parking lot had a Florida plate. Mm-hmm. So if he's putting the pieces together, maybe he's thinking that, okay, maybe they're with this relative or something. Maybe they've, I don't know, again, just, just grasping crazy. at straws yeah. with the hope that right. he'll find them, you know. And in 1967, George went to Houston to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family stating that one of their sons had revealed his true identity to her one night after having a little too much to drink. She said that this boy and another one of their children were living together in that area. When George showed up, he was unable to speak to her. I don't know why, but... Police were able to locate the two men that she had talked about in her letters, but both of them denied being the missing sons. This denial lingered in George's mind for the rest of his life. Another letter they received later that year brought the most credible evidence that at least one of their sons was still alive. After checking the mail one day, Jenny noticed a letter addressed to her. The letter was postmarked in Central City, Kentucky, but had no return address. Inside the envelope was a picture of a young man around 30. The man strongly resembled their son, Louis, who at the time would have been in his 30s if he had survived the fire. On the back of the picture was a note. The note said, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, little boys and a series of numbers, A90132435 is what it said. No idea what the significance of those numbers are, but yeah. That is so weird. What what did it say? It said, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, little boys, A90132435. So, after this, the family hired another private investigator in the area where the picture was sent from, but for some reason, this P.I. never got back to the family, and they were never able to locate him after that. I don't know if he's missing, or did he just ghost them? Right. I don't know, and they don't, they don't know either, I guess. So, they added this photo that they received in the mail to their billboard, They hung a blown-up version of it over their fireplace mantle, which makes me so sad for them. So sad. George Sauter died in 1969 at the age of 73. Jenny and her surviving children continued seeking answers. For the rest of her life, Jenny wore black to represent her state of mourning and continued tending to the garden where the Sauter home once sat. She died in 1989. A lot of people think that the five children were kidnapped and sold to an orphanage in Italy. 
the family received a letter from a woman who claimed that one of their five children was alive in a convent in Italy, which I did not know. Hmm. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of reported sightings of these children, but nothing ever led to anything. I'm like, why would they be sold to an orf- orphanage? I didn't realize that you could even sell. I didn't either, but this was also back in, what, the 1940s? Yeah. It's just all so weird. In an interview, George said, Time is running out for us, but we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what really happened to them. And he died before ever knowing what really happened to his children. And so did Jenny. The remaining children, though, and even their children, uh-huh. um, continued to search for answers, but nothing has come from any of the investigations that they've done. And so, to this day, no one really knows what happened to the rest of the Sauter children on Christmas Eve in 1945. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of cool that the rest of the family, though, is, oh, yeah. like, not letting it die. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a uh, what, three generations. So, yeah, that is, that is all we have for you today. We thank you so much for coming back and listening. Or if you're new here, then welcome. welcome. <laughs> and we hope you stick around. But, um... I hope everybody has a wonderful holiday. Yes. And we will see you again next week. But remember to always keep keep it it spooky. spooky.